Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that the version of You Are My World by the Communards, and now that's what I call Music 6, had a completely differently mixed intro. I once asked the Reverend Richard Coles why this was on Twitter, and he replied, I honestly have no idea. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers, that nobody else ever seems to, is author, restaurant critic, broadcaster, and apparently winging it, it says here, Grace Dent. Grace, I feel like you should be asking me this, but what are you up to where can we find it? Hello, how are you doing? Right, I, oh, I, well, I'm the restaurant critic for The Guardian. I make What We Were Watching for BBC4, which is a, it's a show about the past, which is by no means as good as looks unfamiliar. <laughs> I make a podcast called comfort eating where I talk to celebrities about important things like what's it's and uh, how they like their nandos and you can see me on MasterChef usually scowling at bone marrow that's my job okay well your first choice has absolutely nothing to do with food whatsoever but it is something I remember really fondly so here's a bit of it I'm sure most of you won't recognize it and we'll find out what it is in a minute by, I think it's pronounced Rosie Vela from 1986, minor hit in the UK, which has weirdly stayed in a lot of people's memories. Grace, why do you remember it so much? I absolutely love this song and I always feel as it was it was one of those criminally overlooked 80s songs that kind of should, by rights, be on constant play on, you know, Magic FM and these these because it, it's a it's a slow, feel-good wonderful one-hit wonder (laughs) that should be played all the times that you have to sit through Black Velvet by Alana Miles. (laughs) (laughs) I love Magic Smile because it's just a lovely song sang in such a sultry way by, and if you see Rosie Vela, and I think this was maybe a downfall, she's gorgeous, wasn't she? I mean, I'm sure she still is. Absolutely gorgeous. She was model. And I wonder whether this was her downfall in a way, because maybe she wasn't taken very seriously as a singer-songwriter. But when I think of Rosie Vela, Magic Smile, I think of it got played on the tube, just the video. And I think it maybe got played on the chart show a couple of times. And I went uptown with my money, as you did in Carlisle in the 80s, and I bought it in Woolworths. I think it it cost £1.35. And I played it ever since. It's still in the house somewhere. But she had that one song. And then I don't remember her doing anything else. When I think of her, she's a bit like the female Chris Isaac. (laughs) 
she <laughs> she is somebody who I think was maybe treated like a little bit of a joke but was it was maybe because she was too good looking to actually look straight at <laughs> without feeling bad about yourself a little bit like Chris Isaac do you remember this song I really do because it's funny you should bring up her appearance because the main thing I remember is seeing her in smash hits before I'd heard the song mm. and you know I was how old was I 12 or something thinking oh she's quite nice yeah. which you know I'm gonna make no apologies for I was that age but it's a song that it's a Got a lot more kind of musical muscle yes. than you'd expect. And apparently, Steely Dan are playing on it. And she had all kinds of, I mean, very 80s collaborators. There's a bloke apparently on the album, Zazu, credited with playing the Chapman stick. <laughs> so a very 80s kind of modified bass guitar, like an early synth bass, I think. I've never seen anyone play the Chapman stick, but I feel as if it's something you have to play with a kind of an overbite when you're playing it. <laughs> the only thing I know for certain about it is in the Kajagoogoo annual, there were so short of things to say about Kajagoogoo that one of them wrote a feature about the Chapman stick and how he liked playing it. That sounds like Nick Beggs to me. It was Nick Beggs, it absolutely was. But yeah, it was a minor hit here, but apparently it did nothing in America, which might explain why she just went back to modelling and acting. Although, apparently she was involved with Jeff Lynn from ELO for quite a long time. Yeah. Wrote some ELO songs and also wrote some songs are still crazy the late 90s British comedy film about the rock band that get back together yeah. but she didn't really do anything musical herself which is a shame because you know the quality of songwriting on that album I have now listened to the album in full is really high standards what fascinates me is how some of these songs just fall through the cracks and how other ones become you know how many times have you heard heart these dreams this week <laughs> <laughs> probably six or seven whereas there'll be something like this and it's so beautifully written and so complex you know she's kind of making words up at some point and kind of it's a bit Kate Bush at some points she's a bit all over the place and it's just beautiful and yet nobody knows about it until but then that's one of the wonderful things about YouTube you go on and the comments when you realize that there's these tiny satellites all over the world of people that remember it too you know these people going oh god I used to work at this restaurant and they used to play at great times that is the best thing about youtube so yeah i'm touched that you remember it well 1986 weirdly was i mean there are so many very odd cultural things about 1986 mm. i have to think about it's kind of as previous guest ben baker once said it's like it was built on phil cool ley lines <laughs> and there's all these weird <laughs> phenomenons that just last for the whole of 1986 and disappear but there were loads and loads of people like this who did a sort of quality pop thing that had one hit and were usually hyped and then vanished like hollywood beyond oh yeah I know technically had two, but Baluey some. Oh, and again, Baluey some. You know, I was at a party recently and Imagination came on and it's still, like, I'm going to say banger. It's an absolute banger. <laughs> it still sounds fantastic. But yeah, where did Baluey some go to? I've no idea. Yeah. I mean, he must have upset somebody at Smash Hits because... <laughs> While Imagination was still in the charts, they kept referring to him permanently as Down the Dumper, which is their shorthand for anyone who wasn't popular anymore. I remember they had a board game they gave away with one issue once where you had to get to the top of the charts, but you could be sent to the dumper. And it had a drawing of like hell with a framed picture of Baluey Sum on the wall. So I, I think that probably did. I remember once they did a review of Walkman's. Any that had two stars were apparently Baluey Sum. <laughs> 
both words in quote marks. I mean, that was a different playing field then as well. There wasn't that reverence to people in the public eye. And if, you know, if you didn't please the people who were writing about you, that was it. Well, without smash hits... There would be so many of us that didn't, you know, feel that there was a potential for us out there. I think that Smash Hits was the first time that I sat and I thought, I could do this. You know, I remember, you know, when it would arrive, like, you know, I love talking about Smash Hits because I love seeing my nieces and nephews just like fall asleep as I go, no, pull up a chair. They only came once every two weeks. (laughs) No, no, listen to me. You had to take a small token down to where the, you know, there's tokens you had to cut out the back and give to your news agent to say please will you reserve me smash hits and i will always remember running up the back lane to my house with jimmy the hoover on the front cover of smash hits tantalize but yeah i think without smash hits i remember the first time i realized that black type what black type was on the letters page and how it was a way of them exactly settling scores against pop stars and against people that wrote in i think i thought I can do this. You can get away with this. I I mean, when the Guardian Guide kind of met its end recently, I was trying to think about how I ended up at the Guardian Guide. And I think it was a natural progression for a lot of people that had grown up on smash hits. You know, that kind of, yeah, irreverence, sticking two fingers up to the people that you're meant to be worshipping. Yeah, have you read Sylvia Patterson's autobiography? Because there's a fascinating through line in that about how she's allowed to ask, you know, not adult rude but rude questions to people like Prince you know kind of obnoxious meaningless ones (laughs) and they respond to it and then years later she deviates from a pre-prepared question about nothing to the Beckhams by one word and is ejected from the press conference and so much has changed yeah it's a bit like gremlins we kind of we fed a lot of these people after midnight didn't we We certainly did, but that's not what happened to poor old Rosie Vailer. I'd love to read the Smash It interview with her again, just to see how she responded to that line of questioning. Well, she had an incredibly beautiful voice, and I think that she ended up doing... Did she do backing vocals for DLO? That's as much as I could find out. And then there's a huge gap. We're the Rosie Vailer fan club, basically. I know that there's a bit in the song where she says, I've been dying to see you, baby. I've been dying to Kinove. And it makes no sense whatsoever. And I'm pretty sure that in an interview she said that she just made it up because she was, you know, a free spirit. But then afterwards she found out that in some kind of obscure language it meant something. But as I'm telling you that story, I'm wondering whether I'm getting it mixed up with a Lionel Richie anecdote because he used to just make things up as well and we would all just assume it was something meaningful but it was just him making words up. Basically, Rosie Vela, sure, she just made some things up. Well, I can assure everyone that we've not made her up but we're moving on to your next choice now which is something that I'm not going to tell you what I'm using as a clip here because you've not been able to identify this. I have, but it's something that will definitely not be putting a magic smile on your face. Start again. Okay, some of you might have recognised that, some of you won't. Grace, describe this to everyone. So one of the reasons that I wanted to be on this wonderful podcast, apart from the fact that it is my favourite podcast, I've told you that several times, (laughs) and I mean it, but there's been this thing that has like kind of made me fearful of television screens all of my life. Now, this goes back to me being a very little girl, and when 
I was a little girl, one of my favourite things to do in the world was sit up a little bit later than I was meant to sit in the living room with my dad. And we would watch anything, right? Back in the days, we'd just sit watching telly all night and we loved Kenny Everett and we loved Only When I Laugh. This is how I am, how I am, because he let me watch Monty Python, he let me watch anything I wanted. But there was a part where, and I've never known what it was, where the screen used to go completely black and then a clown used to come out from the side. Now, I must have been four or five years old, but it frightened me so much that I remember tearing off upstairs to bed and it scared me ever since and I've tried to find again and again what comedy show was this I've got a tiny inkling it was something to do with Monty Python it could have been Spike Milligan because that's also very surreal but what this has led me to I mean we're talking about for 40 (laughs) 44 years it's that I mean, I love television and I've written about it for years, but I'm still slightly terrified of blank screens, right? Because I think that one of my biggest fears is that something's in the television. Now, whatever this clown was, and I'm not even that scared of clowns. I'm scared of something being in the television. So, you know, that kind of, you know, Halloween, the Halloween three, I think it is, it's Silver Shamrock. The idea that there's kind of something, kind of a subliminal thing talking to you or the interruption on the Chicago television channel where that Max Headroom man suddenly appeared. These things, Tim, for the love of bejesus, they scare the life out of me. Now, you know, poltergeist doesn't really get me so much, but it's things where people are genuinely kind of trying to scare you and it's that feeling that you get with the wonderful inside number nine halloween thing where suddenly it's kind of ghosts in the machine you know so now that i've talked myself into a slight frenzy (laughs) do you know what this is I know absolutely oh what this is. It's the end of a series three episode of Monty Python's Flying Circus. Oh. It's a continuation that they do the All England Summarised Proust contest in it with the, you know, the, the gong saying start again. Yes. And it's at the end, they say start again and the silence and this clown comes in and waves <gasps> and disappears. I think it does it, it twice. It does it twice. And nobody can work out who is playing the clown. It's impossible to tell because they're so heavily made up. Genuinely, everyone I know finds it terrifying. In fact, during my brief legal career, I became friends with somebody purely on the basis that he mentioned having been terrified by it when he saw it. Oh my gosh. Tim, thank you. Oh my gosh. I feel as if like, I didn't think that anybody else again was out there that remembered that. It's so eerie. So hang on, we don't know who's actually... Is it one of the Monty Python team? Do We we don't know. Nobody's sure. Nobody can work out because it's on a weird kind of... It's not quite directly on camera either. It's like it's been fed in from another source. Yes. And it looks kind of ghostly. Yes. Like blurry and hazily edged. Oh, and it, yes. It's not clear who it is. It doesn't really look like any of them. But sometimes they didn't look like any of them when they had, you know, ridiculous get-up on. So that makes it even <laughs> creepier, really. It is almost like somebody had just barged it. Because that was the thing about exactly what you're saying. Python in particular, the TV show, it's why I like it more than the films or so was It was poking at the edges of this box yes. in the corner of the room, trying to show you almost 
almost that they could come out of it. And it's funny that, you know, you mentioned clowns in relation to it, because the two things, as I've said many times on here, that really, really freaked me out as a child were Tess Cardiff with the girl and the clown playing Noughts and Crosses, and the clown at the start of Camberwick Green, because both of them, the girl and the clown were on when there was nothing on television. And it was, why is that there? Why aren't there programmes? Why aren't people doing something that makes sense? And why that, And with though? the clown, it was that he stirred forwards just before there were no programmes in the afternoon. Like he was looking at yes. you directly. And then nothing, blackness, a void, which another clown might lean into and wave. <laughs> I mean, I remember for years afterwards, my dad kind of winding me up about it and laughing, going, oh, you're scared that clown's going to turn up again. You know? <laughs> like, oh, my gosh. I'm not scared of clowns, though. That's the thing when I don't have that kind of guttural thing that some people have. You know, if I see a clown in the street, I don't have to go and hide in the car. <laughs> I just... But it, 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 don't hide in a clown not, car. That... <laughs> or with a wonky crankshaft holding a bucket of glitter. It's <laughs> just... Well, I mean, it, it's, it's that idea that it's something in the television. It's funny, when you were talking about Python, there's a bit at the end of the Holy Grail where suddenly it just finishes because the police turn up, don't they? And that, I remember again, we got that out in VHS and it must have been about 85, 6. And I was older then, but that really freaked me out. It's this idea, and you've said this before, that in the olden days, when you had things on VHS and they just finished, it was often very late at night and you were just sitting mm. in a living room and then it just finished and the television was finished. And it often left you in a really strange mindset. I mean, now, I don't think we get that feeling. You know, you can watch the most horrible, bloody, awful thing on Sky and then quickly switch over, you know? So you're, you're not left with that kind of feeling of, of upset for a long time. But yeah, that that's all gone. Yeah, I think you're right about that, because I think, I mean, one of the reasons, I mean, I could go on all night about the whole video nasties thing, which I find the whole phenomenon interesting, not the actual films themselves, but I think they had a much greater impact because people watched them, and then by the time they finished watching them, there was nothing on TV. Yes, yeah. There was just almost, there was like a void, almost a silence, really. Mm. There wasn't even much radio after a certain point of night at one time. Yeah, and then you were kind of just left to kind of take yourself upstairs stairs to your bedroom where there was like you know the wallpaper was cream wood chip (laughs) your your mfi coffee you know side table and sit there being absolutely terrified thank you for telling me about the clown and i almost want to go and look at youtube but there's i can't i almost there's a couple of things i can't look at on youtube even though i really want to and i'm sure that's one of them and the other one is do you remember that pot noodle advert in the 90s where it was a guy that looked like an american president and they played ace of spades oh where it was a bit like the u2 zoo tv thing yeah it's like almost a rip-off of that yeah and the guy was suddenly kind of turn upon the tv going intense and looking straight (laughs) at you and i remember coming home one night when i was in university and i think i was slightly high on life shall we say and worse for wear and i I sat down and that was on and honestly it's again scared the love out of me and i I still to this day can't look but this is the power of telly and this is why we love it well that's before i come back onto the max headroom broadcast intrusion you did also mention the frazzles advert that frightened you you've not been able to identify (laughs) 
Right. I, I had to look for this. I couldn't find anything of it anywhere, not even people sort of half remembering it. So this is a real obscurity. I think that this may be one of my earliest possible memories because we were living in Aldershot. My dad was in the army and we were living in Aldershot and I must have been three two or three and it would have been London weekend television maybe or Thames telly and they played it was a frazzles advert with a man in a, a fox's outfit and it was so he was a big fox just and, and it was I mean for, for its time and for the fact that I was very tiny he just seemed like a big actual fox sitting in a chair and he's eating the frazzles you know the point of the advert is that like he just thinks that they're bacon you know because they're so bacony and I remember screaming at this screaming the house down at this advert and being around the back of the telly trying to find where you know what I mean where the fox was (laughs) (laughs) spoiler alert he wasn't there Well, that is really like an advert that, I mean, I was a bit too old to be bothered by it when it was on, but it always bewildered me was there was a Baco foil one where I won't sing it, but it had kind of two operatic blokes singing to the tune of La Donna Immobile. Okay. One was a kind of, you know, that they had those kind of Renaissance beards, yes. you know, like actors having old things. <laughs> yeah. And one was a chef and one had some feathers on. The one with the feathers on said, why go and wrap up me in Baco foil just for tea? <laughs> And the chef said, oh, turkey, can't you see? It makes you so tasty. How there is nothing finer than stuffing? To which the turkey replied, yes, I agree. Now bake foil me. Oh. And the voiceover said, bake foil. Even a turkey can find out its juices. And it was, oh. That would not be allowed now. There's no trace of it online. But, no. you know, the, the whole tenor of it was, you know, this food is happy to be eaten by you. Do you know, <laughs> and, and we've given it a nice jolly opera context to reinforce that. I've literally... Do, I will not watch anything with anthropomorphized animals in it. I just won't do it. And my friends go, Grace, Paddington is the greatest movie and Paddington 2 is even better. And I'm like, does it contain any points where Paddington is lost? <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, it's Paddington. Well, He's lost for the whole it's Paddington. <laughs> and I'm like, look, I watched the first one. And those people he was living with were not very nice and it really upset me. (laughs) So yeah, there's something I've never been able to quite deal with since then. Other than that, I'm quite normal. But speaking of things really messing with the idea that, you know, television was a nice, safe, fictional universe, Mm. we have to talk about the Max Headroom broadcast intrusion (sighs) because it is something that recently, I mean, I know you retweeted this, was I tweeted something about it, about how it's my favourite unsolved crime of all time because I love the fact that whoever did it, did it when it just wasn't possible to do things like that, you know, from your bedroom, has got away with it. All this, They will never be caught. And I'm sure they are, whoever did it, it's the sort of person who will be kind of getting involved in online debates about it, throwing misinformation into the mix, and they are loving it. But it's so, it's terrifying. It really is. I am obsessed with that incident, and I kind of fill my boots with reading about it. And I read and read, and then I think, right, no more. And then about three months later, I'll just fall down a rabbit hole again at any given point. It's endlessly fascinating. It's the fact that it's a cold case and you can't really get any further. And then someone will say, oh, I heard in a pub that somebody said that they were going to do something big on that night. And then everyone goes that way looking at it. And then it turns out the person's either died or is just, a, you know, just joking. It's the fact that the person who did this chose to do something so terrifying, you know, to be kind of, you know, turning his, I'm assuming it's a him, 
turning his, <laughs> turning his bottom to the camera, spanking his bum. There is a woman there, though, during it, isn't yes, there? Yes, yeah. There's a woman. Yeah, you see a hand, don't you? Yeah. I'm sure anybody that's listening to this has watched it, but I could just watch that again and again and again, and it's just like, I almost don't want to know. Because, you mm. know, if it suddenly came out, it's like the fear of it. I've grown fond of the fear. <laughs> you know, those bits in the young ones used to freak me out really badly. You know, the thing of the frog jumping. Yeah. And the carry on cowboy closing caption. Yeah. Which just suddenly appears from nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, again, messed with my head. It really, it's kind of like, why? Why have you done? It's not just the subliminal thing where you're a bit like, oh, hang on, I think I saw something. It's the fact that when you sat with the VHS recorder and pressed pause and you realised you were right, it was the sheer surrealness of it. Is that a word? Yeah, the surreal nature of it, you know? And it's just the fact there was no answers. They just did it mm. because they could. And that is one of the scariest things. Oh, God, see, now we're going into the extra young one, the extra housemate. Again, I don't want to know the truth that it was just, it was just kind of filling the scene. I like to think that that is a really spooky thing. It's an extra thing. It's like, he's again, the ghosts are in the machine and, you know, that things are a bit more subversive and scarier than anyone's worked out until I worked it out. Well, hopefully there's no ghost of the machine involved in your next choice, which is something I'll admit I've more or less put to the back of my mind until you mentioned it. But now, 900 years on, a new doomsday is to be compiled. A unique record of life in Britain in the 1980s. The most comprehensive portrait of this or of any other country which has ever been assembled. Over a million people are helping to compile it. It will use the most advanced information technology specially developed for the project. And in this programme, we'll show you how you can be involved and how you can actually contribute to this new doomsday. We want your help to capture ideas of what life is like in Britain in the 1980s. And later in the programme, we'll be announcing details of our doomsday photographic competition. There'll be valuable prizes, but the main attraction will be the chance for thousands of you to have your photographs put on the discs and to be part of a record for future generations. But let's start by looking back at the original Doomsday book and the picture it gives us of life 900 years ago. Okay, that was Sarah Green and Michael Ward talking about the BBC's 1986 Doomsday project, which, let's just say, as we'll get into, it had problems of its own. Grace, why do you remember this so much? I remember this so much because I must have been kind of one of the first years of infant school. And I remember, now, was it on Blue Peter? I remember that there was some, or was it on Breakfast News? I haven't started yet. There was some kind of official BBC push that there was going to be this new doomsday project just like in the olden times a new doomsday project and I'm pretty sure that one of my main memories is they were going to collate information on everybody's houses almost like a census you could say that they were doing anyway they wanted us to give information about our families and they were going to put it on a big space age silver disc you know one of those what would it be you know like the like a, a big kind of like an early cd like a massive cd oh come on apparently officially it was a laser disc lasered laser disc doesn't it sound (laughs) exciting i mean i loved any of that you know i loved a blue peter bring and buy appeal i loved anything that you know kind of gave us a task to do you know because i lived in a really boring place you know and it was the 70s and the 80s nothing else to do so i remember skipping home merrily and collating all this information and giving it to the school and then giving it to someone and then nothing happened and I've never heard of it ever again and now I think 
did I just grasp my family up to like GCHQ? <laughs> like, <laughs> did, did I just skip along like a merry citizen going, and my dad goes out at five o'clock <laughs> and, and we eat fish fingers and my mum works here. And I'm like, I told them everything. I have no idea where that information is. It feels like it probably went the same way as, you know, the Blue Peter kind of time capsules and stuff like that. I think, I reckon it's probably just in an attic somewhere. Well, you're kind of half right with that (laughs) because it was actually published in 1986 and they made a big song and dance about it, which I'm surprised you missed, which I'll come back to in a minute. But it was the 900th anniversary of the original book and it was, as you say, it was published on Laserdiscs that needed... The BBC Master, which is the big, massive equivalent to the BBC Micro that, you know, only oil barons could afford (laughs) to run it. And the problem is now these discs aren't playable. Mm. A lot of the file formats that we use are completely obsolete. There's this rush to try and salvage it all. You know, people are hunting for the original assets to reconstruct things. The original Doomsday book... It's obviously still sitting there. You know, you don't need to upgrade paper. So, you know, that's an early (laughs) object lesson in, you know, you need to back these things up. You can't just rely on a digital form. The main reason I remember it was was a bit of a shake awake for the Doomsday book. I was vaguely aware what it actually was, but it was the sort of thing where someone would come into school on a, you know, Wednesday morning, say, and say, the world's going to end at 12 o'clock today. Yeah. And everybody say, what are you talking about? And say, the Jehovah's Witnesses have been predicting it for 300 years and it's in the Doomsday Book. I remember thinking, what, they've been predicting like a list of farmers? <laughs> <laughs> are they going to suddenly appear? But it was to celebrate the 900th anniversary of the publication of the original book. And they did go overboard. I mean, there was even there was a daytime quiz show called Doomsday Detectives, which is such a big deal. It was on the lunchtimes on BBC One. It was repeated in the afternoons on BBC Two. All I remember about it now, because it was based on stuff that, you know, was recorded in the 1986 version. And all I remember was the round where you had to identify, like, partnerships or something. And it had a photo of Jimmy Summerville and Richard Coles, the communards. <laughs> Both teams said, don't know, to it. And they were number one in the charts at the time. But... <laughs> <laughs> I, I do wonder That's cold, isn't why it? it was done and who it was done for because no schools could have afforded it. Yes. Libraries wouldn't really have... They didn't have things like computers in those days. Was it just a big kind of justification of the licence fee and public service attitudes? Can you remember anything they actually asked? Because I can't remember no. what the questions <laughs> were. I know that they were collating facts about people but surely all that was being done by the census anyway. That's the whole point of a census. You know, and anything that they were going to ask, oh, hang on a minute, bits are coming back. I'm sure we just had to write about our daily routines. Like, you know, it was a bit like, I'm a little girl and I live in Curragh and we watch telly on a night. (laughs) You know, I mean, what what did your average six-year-old know, you know? Well, do you know something? You haven't made me feel at all better about the sheer ridiculousness of this project. If anything, you've just made me feel worse. <laughs> the interesting thing as well is how long it clearly was between when you answered those questions and when they published it. Because, you know, some of the earlier information they gathered would have been out of that. The Beastie Boys had happened by then. Yeah. Things had moved on. I just don't understand what the point of anything to do with it was. Do you think it was just giving us something to do? Yeah, I, yeah you know something? You're right. It feels like one of those kind of legacy projects that the BBC probably wanted to be seen to be doing. But I would love 
to be able to go and see what I wrote now that would actually be a lovely thing wouldn't it to be able to go and see the little things that the things that you said you know that you felt that you thought were important or maybe it would just shine a light into how bloody boring it was (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I've not actually checked whether it has been made available in any form. I would assume that if people were trying to reconstruct it, you know, people must have done amateur reconstructions as well, surely. But there is that lesson about don't count on things to be around forever digitally. Because, yeah, you know, I was thinking yeah. the other day about how many things used to be, you know, in real player and real audio. I mean, one thing that's disappeared completely, probably not a bad thing given some of the people that were in it. Although I apologise because it's entirely possible that you were in it. But I love the six. The online only I love series. All right. There's nothing out there of now. Yeah, they had things like the only thing I really remember is Andrew Collins talking about Trumpton in it and the fact that it had some editions were obviously presented by people we don't talk about now. Well, I mean, so that it's no bad thing it's vanished, but all trace of that. And it isn't, you know, it isn't some purge to do with who was involved. It's just those pages just went and that was it. Did you ever read? And I'm not sure whether it was Rolling Stone or one of the American magazines. And it was about how from 2003 to 2000, and, and I think it was 10, there's a massive hole that all that music has fallen into because we all had iPods. And now we don't go into our iPods and we can't access that music. So that means that there's just this huge kind of gap where like Alien Ant Farm have fallen into. (laughs) (laughs) And it's strange when you start to think about the music that was around then. Like I bought a Sonos the other day and it for some reason clicked into my iTunes, my Apple Music and suddenly started blasting out these songs like by like the Kills and like just pe- like all these different bands that I've not heard, but it really made me go again. Oh, we've lost all that. Like if the technology changes, there's suddenly I was like kind of going, God, I love this Christina Aguilera song. What happened to this? You know, these kind of forgotten Beyonce songs that people never talk about. Yeah, you've got to look after things, haven't you? Yeah, that's part of the reason I'm convinced that you know physical media isn't done yet, despite what people say. It's when programs start disappearing of streaming services while people are watching them. Oh, God. I think that'll be the turning point there. Okay, well, for your next choice, it's something that, I mean, it definitely did exist, but it's so kind of lost down the back of that cultural sofa that even the writer himself seemed to contradict himself talking about it. I don't know what I'm going to use as a clip here, so I'll stick something in later <laughs> and we'll just go straight into it afterwards. What if the Germans get in? The shot is real, Mum and Dad, in Austria. Czechoslovakia. Austria. <laughs> Czechoslovakia want it, our kid? No, Austria. I meant Austria, clever. The Czechoslovakian part. Why doesn't Willem never speak? He never says anything. Not even at playtime, even. Being evacuated is the worst thing in the world. It's worse than being bedded up to your neck by fuzzy wuzzies in the desert so the ants get you. Okay, no idea what I used there. Grace, what was Puddles in the Lane? Puddles in the Lane is presently the most dustiest time-worn paperback that I own from my childhood. It's a children's book and it is about, it's about some evacuees. Again, not sounding very exciting at all so far. It's a, like this wonderful children's book that kind of, and I surmise I got it from a car boot sale and it landed on my lap. And it is about a group of kids in the East End of London who, after being bombed quite a few times in the Second World War, go off to Wiltshire. They're evacuated. But it's written, it's so 
adult and so moving and so complex and much more complex and beautiful and haunting than a lot of fiction for adults that I read now. So it's always stuck with me and I've kind of went around for years going to people, do you ever read Puddles in the Lane? No one's ever heard of it. So I was moving house at one point and I find this book and I almost think, oh God, do I let go of it? I'll stick it. Is it, I mean, there's pages missing. Should I stick it in the bin? No, I can't. I've got to keep it. And I looked down and I went, who even wrote this? Puddles in the Lane by Alan Parker. And I was like, what, the Alan Parker, right? The Alan Parker of Bugs in Malone fame. Is it, did he write one children's book? So as you say, I go start looking on the internet. He never talks about this book. And, you know, when you, you go to, and read about his life, it's never mentioned. It, it says, he, you know, he was a screenwriter and he was a musical writer and he, he wrote for television and he was, you know, he was a wonderful, you know, multi-talented man. It never says, and he wrote a children's book to the point where I just didn't believe that it could possibly be him you know it's only recently I've started fishing about I have confirmed this is by Ellen Parker but if there was one book that I could ask a publishing house to do a reprint of it would be this book it's so sad and moving about you know they live in this house together and the mum is going out every night and basically leaving them alone when they're being bombed. You know, Alan Parker, right at the beginning, he goes, oh, she's just getting ready and putting her lippy on and she's going off to meet a fancy man. The fancy man has stuck with me forever. Fancy man. She, oh, she's got a fancy man. When I read it as I got older, I thought, is he... I think he's kind of trying to hint that is she going out and is she a sex worker? I'm not sure. It's those type of really adult emotions and themes. But it is just a kid's book, you know, and they get to Wiltshire. And I was reading a little bit about it recently where somebody said it's a detective book because when they get there, you know, there's a detective story to solve. And I thought, no, it's not, you know, it's because these kids get to the Wiltshire and they're in the middle of nowhere and not only are they a hundred miles away from London and away from their families that weren't very good families anyway they have nothing they're miles it's the 19, late 30s and they've got nothing and they begin to love the countryside and it's about that you know and it's not cheesy it's about how they've never seen cows before they've never you know puddles in the lane is just a reference to you know they have to walk down this kind of really long lane to get to the farm they've been sent to and there's massive puddles and you know obviously the farm people have got wellies so they just walk through them whereas they're just in these like plimsolls so they can't walk they can't get anywhere and so anyway yes that's all I really know about it other than I just love it and I you know I was reading I had it beside my bed the other day and I was reading it and I was thinking could I get this republished and what's the point will people love it but I think that it says a lot about the idea of war and the reality of war you know like the way that people use the idea of blitz spirit (laughs) as if you know oh we all had such a lovely time during the second world war and we all pulled together and then whenever people say that I think about these kids all in the Anderson shelter by themselves. And like, you know, the 13-year-old girl is having to be the mum and like the baby, you know, the baby's in its nappy and it kind of soiled itself like eight hours ago, but they can't get out because they can't go anywhere. And houses are being looted. (laughs) It's like the public aren't pulling together, really. (laughs) They're kind of looting each other's houses. I think that Alan Parker was talking about what he knew. 
and talking from the heart. So yeah, I'm just a massive fan. And I am the number one fan of Puddles in the Lane in the entire world. I love it much more than Alan Parker ever did because he never talks, he never talked about it. No, and that was really interesting. That I mean, looking into it, first of all, there's all kinds of debate on the internet about whether it's actually him or not. It definitely is, even though it's not on his Wikipedia page, it's not in his official biography, anything like that. I found two interviews where he talks about it, where he gives a completely different account in both. It seems to have been that it started in the early 70s. He did a film called No Hard Feelings, which is supposed to be like a pilot for a series called Stories of the Blitz, where it was looking at, you know, the Blitz from different perspectives. And one of them was a story that became Puddles in the Lane. Mm. But in an interview where he talks about the actual book, he says that we wrote it and no one was interested in his pilot, so I had the story sitting around and years later I just did it as a children's book. You know, he says that almost as a throwaway thing. But then, in another interview where he talks about when he did the film of The Evacuees by Jack Rosenthal, mm. he said it was because a producer had seen the script and had seen Jack Rosenthal's script and thought, hmm, we should put these together in some way. And so either nothing happened with it or you made a film on the back of it. Yeah. Yeah. What, what is it? Why is it, even to him, is it so obscure and confused? Why was he so reticent to talk about the fact that he'd written a book? Just, just this one book, just one book for children, young adults. Well, it can't even be embarrassment because he did Bugsy Malone. Exactly. And he wrote a book that should be up there with the great children's books. So many of the children's books that we are told are fantastic are actually a little bit light on plot and a little bit a little bit kind of glossing over things whereas he had that way of kind of getting in and talking about basically kind of child neglect and loneliness and sadness and absent fathers and and he just did it just knocked it out of the park just wrote this incredible book that I would have you know I'd die to have you know I've written quite a lot of young adult books died to have written and it's something as good as that and then never spoke about it ever. Evacuees were quite a theme around then and things aimed at children, probably because, you know, anniversaries were looming of various wartime events and, you know, it was within living memory and so on, but there were endless children's BBC dramas about evacuees. Mm. It seemed to me like they did the story of evacuees every week on Blue Peter. You know, you'd have Simon Groom saying, if this was you, you'd have gone off carrying a box a bit like this. <laughs> and then, you know, Janet Ellis would say, hmm, imagine having to put everything you owned in a box like that. If it's just constantly referenced all around you so it's no surprise that he wrote this book really but like you say even he pretended it didn't exist and the only photograph of it online is taken from about 500 feet above you know it's one of those photos you get on amazon where it's the they haven't even scanned the book cover they haven't even photographed it properly and cropped it it's just a photograph of a book the front cover is three children standing together it looks as if it should have in small print beside them from the bbc drama puddles in the lane because they have that bbc prop department evacuee look you know this isn't if this was just a book that they'd fired out it would have just been an illustration on the front but it really looks as if this book has been a drama See, I haven't made myself feel any better at all talking about it now. I'm just more rattled than I was when I started. <laughs> there was that thing, though, because I remember yeah, they republished the Famous Five books when the Famous Five was on TV with them on the covers. But they also republished the Secret Seven with the Secret Seven. You know, there was no series of them, just some kids posing as them. I remember thinking, who are they? What business have they got being on the cover of a book? 
can't, can't get into Famous Five or Secret Seven. I just couldn't get into it at all. Couldn't get to Magic Faraway Tree now. Loved that. But I couldn't. Yeah, Secret Seven. No. Okay, well, I mean, I mentioned the Famous Five TV series. And, you know, they were quite often seen on bikes. But even during the short space of time between that and your next choice, things have moved on so severely you would not have seen them on any kind of bike like this. I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore because this programme confused me then and it confuses me now. Here's a theme song which has been permanently lodged in my head ever since then and it will be again now. Okay, that was the theme from BMX Beat, a programme which, again, is going to turn out had some weird mysteries around it. But Grace, you don't strike me as the BMXing sort. Well, look, I lived in Carlisle and BMX Beat was filmed in Carlisle. It was filmed in the car park at Border Television. So the idea that all these BMX boys were coming to Carlisle for a young girl and her, and her female friends along my street, the Chilean BMX boy, Raphael Bergen, all these, I mean, all the loveliest boys at one point did ride BMXs. It, and this is a part of history that I don't think we ever really talk about that for a point in history BMXs were massive you know yes like they were massive everybody in your street had a BMX and were kind of constantly trying to do what did people do did they do bunny hops I'm not sure I know that was they went up a half pipe was that one thing that they did? They did all kinds of different tricks and jumps and basically things that would land your average person in A&E and in traction. So BMX Beat, it was a BMX skills competition from Border Television presented by the Cockney Cheeky Chappie, Andy Ruffle, who was actually a very good presenter. He was very, very natural. He was just a bit of, kind of a bit like Joe Swash. You know, that kind of absolute salt of the earth, like normal bloke with a microphone in his hand who's actually really, actually charismatic. He was a BMX rider. You know, not a lot happened in Carlisle. And when things like this did happen I think it was glamorous you know like there seemed to be some weird crossover with BMX Beat and Get Fresh so you used to get BMX Beat used to be kind of advertised on Get Fresh and then sometimes Charlotte would turn up for some reason on BMX Beat and Gaz Top was sometimes on BMX Beat and weirdly Get Fresh used to come to Carlisle and, and, and I'm sure if I think about it now it just had to be crews and who was working on things and probably where you could put the Get Fresh spaceship <laughs> you know what I mean? Where could you <laughs> land it? Yeah, Get Fresh was also very important to me. I don't want to brag, but I did see Go West on Get Fresh. Wow. <laughs> wow, I know. It was really, really exciting. I'm pretty sure I saw, I don't know whether this was when Swap Shop came, but I did see Toto Coelho 
play at Carlisle Castle as well. But th- these are different times. Let me get back to BMX Beat. It was <laughs> like, it was just a big deal, you know, like I remember I went out with a lad when I was about 12, as much as you can go out with a lad. And his brother had been on BMX Beat. And it was a big deal, wow. you know? Yeah. It was like, it was as if you were kind of going out with like Barry Sheen or someone like that. Or like, you know, what was he called? Eddie Kid. BMX Beat had the same swagger. <laughs> it had the same swagger and hot boys doing dangerous stunts. It's like a junior Eddie Kid or something like that. It was that kind of, yeah, it was, it was just exciting. It is almost unwatchable when you watch it back now <laughs> there's tons of it on youtube though it's absolutely tons i was looking the other day to see where some of the people had gone it's quite funny if you put i tried to find Raphael bergen to see if i've still got a chance <laughs> and he's a chilean bike specialist <laughs> so a lot of them ended up like with their own kind of like bike shops and bike showrooms and whatever but yeah i don't know do you re- so hang on i always assumed it was just like something they played in the north but do you i mean so do you remember that where you were or well yes i do remember being shown on granada but this is where it all got very mysterious because i tried to find out you know just the basic details of it there were so many different dates given online for when it ran let's just say it was somewhere between 1983 and 1987 yeah. and i actually even allowing for how late television will be latching onto trends i think 1987 was a bit late for a bmx show yeah but yeah i remember it being you know about 82 83 but the other thing is people call it a saturday morning show i remember it as being on in the summer holidays the school summer holidays every morning yes. Because I remember people going out on the BMXs afterwards. And, you know, quite a different experience for me because we lived virtually next to the prom in Liverpool, which, you know, now is quite gentrified and it's full of people doing their couch to 5K and so on. But in those days, you did not go past the end of our road on a any kind of bike that, you know, wasn't an old lady's one with a shopping trolley because, you know, somebody who dared to venture further afield. I realise I'm being derogatory at my hometown here. I'm sorry, everyone, oh, but I'm just it's... telling you how it was. Some boy who'd been brave enough would re-emerge two hours later you know sort of staggering back with a sleeve torn down on his t-shirt and say they took my bike you know to there were gangs lying in wait because it, it really was quite run down. You know, you're from on the Liverpool. waterfront. Then. You're allowed. To, you're, you're allowed to say that. <laughs> and my family are all scousers, so I think that anything that we say about Liverpool, we say it with our hearts full of love and wouldn't. Yes. <laughs> you know, but yeah, I can imagine. I don't. I mean, yeah, because I mean, these BMXs were expensive. If you had like a, if you yeah, had a really yeah. good one, yeah. I mean, it's for, right. Trying to narrow down when it would have been. So when did ET? come out because was that that was 1982 yes so that was when bmx's kind of were you know were on the brink of being cool weren't they see i would have thought it was a bit no it has to be like 83 84 85 hasn't it when it was on but yeah i mean it's so the amount of kids that would come and watch it as well like all kind of sitting in rows and rows and rows and rows and rows and just so excited and they would go and from Carlisle, Peppy Winder. And all the kids would go, yes, <laughs> Peppy Winder. And he would like come out and like do some hops on his bike and then go up the half pipe and then turn around. And everyone would be like, whoa, this is amazing. Uh, it's like being in America. 
I mean, this, I mean, how long did the summer holidays feel then, though? It was like six, oh, six, yeah. <laughs> six weeks of like nothing, you know, and these things were so important, you know, just I think it, I think, it, you know, BMX has just seemed to stop didn't they as well yeah i think didn't mountain bikes replace them yeah but like i never got into mountain bikes whereas with a bmx i was quite happy out on my brother's bmx you know like bmx were quite it was quite you know it was quite it was a sturdy bike i didn't think twice about going down the shops on a bmx but then these mountain bikes came out and they just seemed like you could really do yourself damage on a mountain bike (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just big and they're tall but then saying that as you get older you realize that you can just break your hip or your arm at any point and it's just usually better just to stay in the house and also it was a bit like rubik's cube versus rubik's magic one was fun and one was well i know rubik's magic was about how clever you are but you know mountain bikes were about how outward bound you were about how active you were and yeah they weren't quite the same thing but you were told almost to treat them as the same thing but mentioning get fresh is bizarre because one one of the main things that I remember about it was I remember, you know, the theme tune has haunted me. Yeah. But on one of those features on Get Fresh where they promoted it, Charlotte Hindle was stood with a group of BMX bikers. And, you know, she said, blah, blah, blah. And they even know our theme song. And they sang it, but they sang it with completely the wrong tune. <laughs> about 11 or 12. And that was even worse for me. Like, God, I'm going to have a variant of it lodged in my head now. And I don't know how that happened. Somebody must have just not known how it went and said to them, oh, I've got the words, which were, from memory, BMX boys have a lot of fun riding a bike out in the sun. I remember BMX boys. BMX, yeah, that's that, yeah. But yeah, two different versions of that really annoying tune. So hang on, was Get Fresh where Gilbert came from? Yes. I love Gilbert. I honestly, I love Gilbert. Now, hang on, was that Phil Cornwell? Cornwell? Phil? Phil? Yes, Phil, it was, yeah? yeah. Talking about adult themes in children's shows. Like, that was just so flying under the radar. You know, this kind of oaf of an alien that kind of, like, spurted, <laughs> spurted snot. <laughs> and it was just that, you know, Phil Cornwell's kind of sarcasm and again it was very surreal do you remember the thing about the second world war in gilbert's fridge the offshoot program and there was a thing about the second world war called how far to hitching and it was about some men who and it was a bit like the great escape or something some men and they were in a kind of a a barrack they were obviously prisoners of war and they used to sing how far to hitching it's hitching i'm missing and it, it was like a show within a show they would sing it and it they would all sing it like wonderfully it's hitching that I'm missing doing like harmony and then Gilbert would just come in and go how far to hitching (laughs) 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 and I remember as a child going this is fantastic it was there was a real like young ones kind of feel to that you know I love the fact that somebody just woke up one day and went actually this shouldn't be on (laughs) (laughs) And <laughs> just, no more Gilbert. Get Fresh was a spaceship, wasn't it? Didn't the spaceship land? Oh, magical times. Like, that doesn't happen though now, do it? We, they don't do like the road show of things, do they? They don't do, you know, because like, the, the, you know, the God, the, I cannot communicate to people younger than me how exciting the Radio 1 road show was <laughs> and how exciting bits and pieces was you know (laughs) like every day summer holidays must have been about 82 getting up for the six long weeks having a packet of like 
powdered gnaw vegetable soup, worrying about Armageddon, because I think I'd watched Threads. This will date what year it was. What's it, what year did that come out, Threads? And That was 84. Yeah, it was a, bit, a yeah. bit later then. Sitting worrying about the nuclear bomb and then playing bits and pieces. <laughs> <laughs> Six weeks of magic. But yeah, these things come in to your town were really exciting you know this having like a little bit of you know whether it was get fresh or suddenly gas tops like standing outside your local castle you know or suddenly no ledmans is like you know in the town square and he's he's brought you know he's brought dollar with him <laughs> like these things are dead exciting i mean i've got such fond memories about that type of thing well that's a good moment to move on to one of your next choices which we'll go straight into except i can't get away without playing this theme song Okay, that's the theme for the Untied Shoelaces show, which is another kind of school summer and, well, other holidays thing that, for reasons that can be obvious, I never saw. Grace, what was it? So the Untied Shoelace, is it shoelace or plural shoelaces show? It seems to vary yes. from what I can tell. Okay. So sometimes it was a pair of shoes, sometimes it was just one. <laughs> <laughs> the Untied Shoelaces show was a BBC Scotland kids show. Now, I always think of it as being... Again, a summer holidays thing. It only played in BBC Scotland. Now, I lived almost on the border. Like, Carlisle is like, you know, seven, eight miles from the border of Scotland. So, if I wanted to pick up BBC Scotland... Now, we had a portable telly in our house. that um, So, we had the big telly downstairs in the living room. And then there was this floating portable television that we spent, me and my brother spent our childhood, like stealing it out of each other's rooms and, you know, giving each other dead arms to get it. There was a button on the front. And if I gave it a waggle, I could get BBC Scotland. And I did this to escape from Why Don't You? Because I never really liked Why Don't You? You know, I mm. found it a little bit, a little bit twee, you know? Whereas the Untied Shoelaces show is one of the most bizarre children's shows. It was filmed in Glasgow, as far as I can see. Its presenter was this kind of good-looking, kind of swaggering a Scottish guy called Tiger... Is it Tiger Tim? Tiger Tim, I think I seem to remember. And he kind of wore, like... It was 1983, so he used to wear kind of, like, lemon <laughs> trousers and kind of, like, he had a bit of a mullet going on. The reason why this show is so strange is because, on one level, it was a really high octane kind of Cheggers plays pop razzmatazz type children's show where there's they had hundreds of kids on set and the kids were not very old they were eight nine years old and they're screaming constantly and everybody seems to be in day glow and everyone's got silly string and everybody's screaming and face painting but it's interspersed with tiger tim going so let's go to some music and every time he goes to music, and there's tons of this again on YouTube, he never once says, and let's go to Kajagoogoo, or, and let's go to Dollar. He doesn't go to ever go to anything that's even pop. 
the bookers must have been continually booking kind of Glaswegian post-punk bands. (laughs) (laughs) It's just amazing. So they'll go, and that's the end of the, you know, pin the tail on the donkey. And Julie from Port Glasgow, she's won the custard pie. And now let's go to Let's Go Native. And then suddenly there's like (laughs) some kind of like, Billy McKenzie lookalike swaggering around with cheekbones, you know, and it is like that all of the time. And I, I've got a lot of time for Scottish music in the 80s. And, you know, when I was a little girl, I used to take my radio to bed and listen continuously to Radio Scotland. And I was a big fan of a DJ called Tom Ferry. And he used to play from 10 till 12. My mum would say, you know, don't listen to music tonight. And I was just a tiny girl. And I'd have my little earpiece in, you know, listening to the associates and whatever, Hipsway or whoever it was around at that point. So I love that type of music. But these bands on the Untied Shoelace show, there weren't any of them. You know, it was kind of, I would say it was kind of Glasgow art scene bands that nobody, you know, that these kids will never have heard of any of these bands, but it didn't affect how excited the kids are by them, you know? (laughs) So they'll go, and now let's go over to, you know, Time Bandits playing whatever, you know. These kids are like, yes, this is amazing. (laughs) So it's always been like really, again, one of those memories that only I know about. You know, I I say it, I've said it to lots of people. Do you remember the Untied Shoelace show? I say to a lot of people about Tom Ferry too. And it's just like a moment in time that nobody remembers. Well, I'm convinced that there are some other people out there that remember it, because I could well imagine the original lineup of Bell and Sebastian probably watched a lot of this, because from what I've seen of it, there's a lot of it in their early material, yes. in, you know, the sound and the aesthetic and so yeah. on. But the really interesting thing I noticed was one of the other hosts is Edwina Laurie, okay. who, of course, presented Data Run on TVAM okay. with Edwin the Computer. But what was interesting was I'd always wondered why... In the summer between series of Data Run, they did a series called Summer Run. Nobody remembers this. It replaced the theme tune by Yazoo of the regular series with Junior singing Ooh, Summer Run, Ah, Summer Run to the backing of Mama used to say. But it was presented by... I love Junior, I'm sorry. I love Junior. Was Junior, take some time, yeah, man. That's that's him. Yeah, oh gosh. But this, rather than presented by her, was presented by Timmy Mallet, not even in the Data Run studio, just in front, like superimposed in front of a drawing of a pier. And I'd always thought, where's she? Why isn't she doing Summer Run? And it's because she was doing this. Yeah, they'd stolen her. They'd stolen her for <laughs> the Untied Relay show. I just love the feeling that everybody that was involved in this, other than the kids, were kind of making the late review on BBC Two. <laughs> and, it, and you know, even like Tiger Tim, you know, he's really cool. You know, he's got that kind of like 80s kind of mullety. He's kind of like a cheeky kind of art scene Marty Pello. Like everybody involved in this show could very well just be kind of running an arts venue. And I, I just wonder whether it was one of those things where they just got the funding for the Untied Shoelace show and then just did what they wanted anyway. Well, it, it's kind of making me think of the way that when Pat Nevin was at Everton in the 80s, that, you know, because 
most of the footballers like, you know, Lionel Richie and Phil Collins. Yeah. And then he'd be saying, oh, I like the fall and joy division. Yeah. Was occasionally he would host on Radio City in Liverpool the indie show that was normally presented by Tony Snell. <laughs> it was just like he'd just go, mumble, mumble, here's the sugar cubes. As <laughs> I put it. But it was that kind of, it's very odd to think. People have just that slightly arty leading were treated as serious weirdos in the 80s. Oh, God, completely. And it was, you know, he was considered a, you know, a bizarre aberration. And probably now, try finding a footballer who doesn't like kind of outsider music. Yeah. I imagine that it's pretty much de rigueur now. I loved it when they used to call Graham Lasso the prof because he'd once said he read The Guardian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've just got a kind of a big love for Scottish culture in the 80s. And, you know, in the, in the early 90s, I spent a lot of time living in Scotland. And to me, this is my tiny little slice of being a little kid. I'm just going to take a wild guess of B.A. Robertson on the Untitled oh, show quite a lot. Do you know, I love B.A. Robertson whenever anyone used to use him as a punchline. I used to kind of go, this man wrote some amazing songs. Yes. He really yeah, I did. I agree completely. The Scots are brilliant though at that. You know, they're just off the scale. I loved living there. You know, I think that the Scots have it in them to be the biggest dandies of all. You know, the biggest <laughs> Like, like Jesse Ray, I'm going to go, I'm going to go to New York and I'm going to dress as a centurion. And I'm just, you know, it's it's wonderful. Okay, well, we're not moving that far from that kind of mindset for your next choice because we're going to be taking a look at a rather more serious series that was a big deal in its day that's sort of been forgotten about. I'm not making it sound very exciting there, but this bit of dialogue will do the work for me. Oi, oi, oi. Sorry, Mr. Parks. Sorry? Sorry ain't going to do any good when I've got to scrape this idiot up off the floor now, is it? We don't have to put up with that sort of crap out of you anymore. Don't you talk to me like that. Oh, what? You'll uh, send us to the Ed, will you? <laughs> We're finished with this place now, Parky, which means there's nothing you can do. You got that? Yeah. It also means I can push your teeth so far down your throat, you're going to have to stick your hand up your ass to bite your nails. You got that, Sonny? On your way. Okay, that's a rather salty exchange in the first episode of Going Out. Grace, I imagine you had to ask permission to watch this. <laughs> Going Out. You know, I was telling you about the portable television that moved from room to room. Now, my old mother, rest in peace, God bless her soul, we had one of the biggest stand-up, almost physical fights over that portable television and going out because going out was far too old for me. I shouldn't have been watching it, which made it all the more delicious and exciting. It's just, it's a Phil Redmond, isn't it? And it's definitely got old school Grange Hill tones, but Grange Hill, not just after dark, Grange Hill, like, you know, it's about a group of friends who are, you know, trying to get laid. How old do you think they are? 15, 16, 14, 15? Trying to get laid, smoking fags, drinking, going to school discos, leaving school, going to job centres, getting into fights. There's a lot of fighting, a lot of pointless, senseless, tit-for-tat people. Somebody gets flashed at some point. Is it Kathy, the main character? Does she get flashed down in a subway? There's just kind of this rolling sexual tension all the way through it about and, and kind of off the cuff 
the way that young people are off the cuff talk about condoms and you know masturbating and getting off with each other and and I remember my mother coming in when I was watching the first episode and being furious I think she must have come in straight as somebody was talking about some you know and this was you know this was the early 80s and you know we were much more prudish then and she forbid me she took the telly she took the telly Tim she took (laughs) she took the telly so I thought okay I'll just play her at her own game. I won't tell her when it's on next week. (laughs) I took the telly again. (laughs) And I pieced it together and I never got to watch the end of it because in the end, I don't know what she did with the telly in the end. I I don't know whether she locked it in the airing cupboard or something. But years later, and I, I felt as if, again, like I was the only person that remembered this show. I didn't know what it was called. I kept getting it mixed up with, there was a Scouse one that was a bit like this. And I know that you're going to know the name of this one. Was there a Scouse show that was almost the same? There was What Now? What Now? Thank you. If anyone was going to know the answer to that question, it was you. So I kept getting it mixed up with What Now? It was like in my head. And then about two years ago, you know, when you go down a rabbit hole of putting different words in, keywords, and it just brought it up. YouTube gave me it and it gave me every episode. And I sat and 40 years or something later, I got to watch the end. And it is absolutely brilliant. The cast are, so Linda Robson's definitely in it. There's a few people from The Bill. There's people from EastEnders. There's all kinds of people in it. And it's just, it's just wonderful, you know. And I one of the last because I used to laugh with my mother all the time, you know. And I remember ringing her and like, she was about 84 at that point. And I was like, hi, ma'am. I just watched the end of that show. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, and there's nothing you can do about it. She was going, oh. (laughs) So it was, it was, you know, and I think it's, I was going to say, if Channel 4 put it back on again now, I think that a lot of people would be really, really cheered by her if it was put on back again. But there's a part of me that can't really get to the bottom of where it was played. Was it a Channel 4 show? Was it an ITV show? I don't know. And when you read the YouTube comments, no one else knows either. People keep going, I used to watch this show definitely on Channel 4 on a Thursday night at 8 o'clock. And then someone will go, no, it was on Saturday nights on, you know, on ITV. I'm sure you'll probably know the truth well i'm fairly certain it was itv because the copyright date is 1981 which is pre-channel 4 i mean itv did make stuff that was shown on channel 4 but i think it was itv i can't work out what slot it would have been in though without rooting through tv times to try and work out when it was on but it must have been on late-ish if you were getting prevented from watching i think it was about 9.30 9.30 at night, at least. What's he called? Gerard McKenna? What, the Scottish, that wonderful Scottish actor. That, oh, Gerard Kelly. Gerard Kelly is in it, and he's kind of the big bully. He's kind of like the gripper stepson of the show. And he just basically spends six episodes kind of going, you spoke to my girlfriend and I'm going to hit you. And that's it. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that is a Scottish accent. It's, it's a variety of one. He's called Haggis or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's like let's give the Scottish villain a name what can we call him so yeah I've spent years trying to find out what happened to Marcus Francis who played Sean he was the lead character and he's, he's kind of like quite fey 
enigmatic kind of Nick Kershaw lookalike. There's no reference to where he went afterwards. I think he just did his filming and then that was it. Yeah, there's a few like that from around then who just did, you know, one kind of youth drama and then disappeared. Yeah. Sometimes the trail goes cold very quickly on these people. And yet they made such a mark on people's lives at a formative stage by being in a programme that kind of spoke for them and to them. Do you know who I absolutely love who's in this, his career is, you know, he's a real national treasure. It's Peter Hugo Daly. He was in Breaking Glass as well. Now, that is one of my favourite films of all time, the Hazel O'Connor film Breaking Glass. And he's a drummer in that. They call him, like, lethal. And he always plays, well, he always did when he was young, he always played this kind of, like, a yob, an unstructured, uncultured yob who was kind of good looking as well there was a weird sexiness about him but he was just out of control and he plays that in this he's kind of he gets sent off to work in a factory and you know he's the first one to get a pretty girlfriend like and it's just it it's just a lovely really captures the kind of hopelessness of the time these kids have been spewed out of school and there isn't anything for them and they don't know where they're going and they're having their first partners and don't know whether to stay with them. And, you know, it's about trying to go on the pill and try, <laughs> trying to buy condoms and adult themes. Good for Phil Redmond. I think it's, it was great. And the interesting thing was he then showed the other side of the coin because not long after this, he launched Tucker's Luck, yeah. which... It's a more positive spin on the same thing because you've got, you know, Tucker's thrust out of school into the world of unemployment and so on. And he goes on schemes and apprenticeships and, you know, usually like loses them because he's Tucker and he's cheeky. But, you know, there's that whole storyline about his enmity with that skinhead. And then they find out when they're against the wall, they've got more in common than they realise, that sort of thing. So it wasn't all doom and gloom, unusually for Phil Redmond. I was reading comments under going out and there was lots of people in the Netherlands that were saying this was massive in the Netherlands <laughs> really yeah. that's just so bizarre because I have a thing about Phil Redman that you know people who live in Liverpool will be thinking this straight away that I don't think really translated was he was forever blessing but making unrealistic bids for things like the Olympics to be in Liverpool <laughs> And then he'd be on the front of the Echo, holding his forehead in his hand, you know, saying like, I don't understand why the 1917 <laughs> Venezuelan elections can't be in Liverpool. <laughs> Bless him, he was trying his hardest, but he was just, he was thinking too big. Yeah. It's like the opposite of Tony Wilson, who, you know, had these great ideas, but thought too small with them. And if they'd sort of met in the middle, the world might be a better place. Oh, I love that. I always say, like, the bigger the kind of wonderful lunatic, the bigger the musical (laughs) they decide they're going to put on, you know? It's like, (laughs) but we need these people. We need, like, thank God somebody, like, pushed to have the 2012 Olympic ceremony, you know? Thank God. Yeah. Thank God that somebody has to do it. I'm kind of often more likely the one that's going to, sit with my arms folded going it's just not gonna work (laughs) well I suppose these are really awkward conversations for adults to have and I think that sometimes they just want to have them on their own terms and they don't want to have to have it at 10 o'clock on a Tuesday night with a child far too young to have been watching something going mummy what's a condom so I can understand why she you know I remember her being like that about do you remember that BBC2 play The History Man I remember it being on in the living room and I think it was probably the first time I ever saw a graphic sex scene with, you know, suddenly the entire screen (laughs) 
being filled with a very, very hairy man's sex face. <laughs> and my mother going, right, everyone's going to bed. <laughs> so, yeah, going out, I thoroughly recommend it. Go to YouTube and watch it. Okay, well, we're going to move on now to something much more wholesome from the 80s. This showcases this duo at their finest, I think. Okay, that's a seemingly never-ending intro to Love of the Common People by Paul (laughs) Young, which, you know, would be a strange choice for this, but it's not actually Paul Young or the song. Grace, who are we highlighting? One of the pub fights that I am willing to die in is over (laughs) the album No Parley by Paul Young, that I will argue to the hilt is a fantastic album, and it meant so much to me as a child. And yes, let's look perhaps over his version of Love Will Tear Us Apart, right? But there is some absolute bangers <laughs> on that album. And it's made all the more wonderful by his backing singers. And they were two women called Maz Roberts and Kim Leslie. And they were called the Fabulous Wealthy Tarts. And I loved them when I was a little girl. Whenever Paul Young played the tube or whenever he played anything, you would see these fantastic women. One was blonde. One was brunette. They were kind of sexy and they were naughty and they made themselves absolutely kind of... They weren't backing singers that you didn't notice. (laughs) You really noticed them. (laughs) You know, they turned up and they had dances and they had these worked out choreographed moves and they were just fantastic. I loved the fabulous Wealthy Tarts and I loved... The fact, I love their name. You'd never get away with it now. And and I know that over the years, they've tried to kind of find different ways to say it, you know, and abbreviate it and that. But it was this idea that, well, hang on. I think that they were called the Fabulous Wealthy Tarts because they started life with Jules Holland and his millionaires or Jules Holland and the millionaires. So it became Jules Holland, the millionaires or his millionaires, and then Maz and Kim, the fabulous wealthy tarts, you know, and they've both got absolutely cracking voices. And then I started to look into, you know, over the years, you know, especially this is why the internet is fantastic, because you can kind of go down again a rabbit hole and go, oh my God, that's them on Zambezi by the Piranhas. <laughs> yeah, I just, I just love them. And I, I love the whole album, No Parley. And whenever, like, Love of the Common People comes on, as it comes on, you know, Heart and Magic and whatever, it comes on 20 times a day, it's their backing vocals that you sing, not him, you know? Yes, it's that kind yeah, absolutely. Of, you know, it's yeah. a good thing you don't have good thing. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's like, wah, 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 yeah. And, like, they're all of their kind of... When you think of those songs, you can kind of think of them, like, with their hands... And their fingers crossed almost like in front of them, 
kind of like shaking their fists from the side to side and that. When you go on YouTube again and, you know, you put in, because this is this really filthy song on No Parlay, which you no one ever talks about now. Do you remember Sex by Paul Young? I'm aware it exists. <laughs> I'm aware of its presence. Yeah. And it's like... <laughs> Paul Young, like kind of going, oh, I'm not going to, I won't sing it, but it's filthy. And they were filthy. And there's like loads of amazing photo shoots where they're kind of like straying out of being kind of backing singers and almost going into like kind of razzle territory. (laughs) They're like kind of, (laughs) look at us in lycra dresses. But there was something really empowering about them when I was a kid I absolutely loved them and uh yeah so I don't know whenever I say in the fabulous wealthy tarts and someone's ears pricks up I think yes yes friend let us talk about them well there were also Tracy Ullman's backing singers on You Broke My Heart in 17 Places which if anyone's never heard that you know I know it's easy to knock her now really but that album basically it's a polar opposite of Paul Young doing Love Will Tear Us Apart it's really good covers of things and she does them straight the comedy was in the videos it wasn't on the songs but they were her backing singers on that apparently they also did a single themselves a cover of The Last Time by the Rolling Stones that nobody seems to have heard No, no it existed there's photos of the sleeve out there but I don't know was it kind of in the Paul Young style or or what but there was a thing in the 80s for having an additional well I know Paul Young wasn't a band but you know an additional person that wasn't part of the main act but sort of was like Helen Terry oh with Culture gosh, Club yes. and Jed who was with Howard Jones the mind bloke I know he didn't contribute to the music but there were loads of them around <laughs> technically I know he was part of the band but Paul Rutherford and Frankie Goes to Hollywood did very few vocals all absolutely heroes i mean sorry we could do an entire episode of looks unfamiliar just talking about people who were on things that didn't really do a lot but then saying that i'd feel bad putting helen terry in there because that backing vocal on church of the poison mind yes yeah incredible did you hear the mirth in my voice when you just said jez and howard jones it's just the idea that anybody was like yeah, yeah, so this is my mime. Yeah, this is <laughs> this is my mime. What's he going to do? Well, he's kind of going to... He's going to walk up a wall. <laughs> he's going to... He's going throw off your mental chains. Oh, yeah, he's got chains. <laughs> but there is a great thing about Church of the Poison Mind, just mentioning that, which is when I was too young to, you know, understand the implications of the lyrics, I actually thought it was about a religious cult that boy George had escaped to the clutches. Yeah. Of. There was an actual Church of the Poison Mind and they tried to recruit him and he'd run off down the street with that hat on. Really slowly, <laughs> under the weight yeah. of his hat and his dreads. I kind of love Paul Young. I mean, I know that it all dropped off a bit after no parlay but I do I I think that you know he did have a lovely voice and he was gorgeous and he was a perfect pop star I've just got a lot of time for that album I love wherever I lay my hat that's my home I still love it it's like one of those sticky face against a cold mini cub window on the way home think about the mistakes you've made in your life it is quite sad that you know people like him and Howard Jones I suppose are kind of actually you know they're starting to have a bit of a renaissance now but for some reason we're seen as the last word in yeah. that for a long time when they really weren't at all their only crime was to have sold a lot of records in the 80s when people decided they didn't like the 80s for a bit and that's all it was yeah yeah I mean it it is difficult 
I suppose you have to work out when to jump back in and when to kind of or when to reinvent yourself or when, you know like there's a lot of 80s bands that are still very very revered you know nobody turns their nose up at Duran Duran now no nobody <laughs> everybody seems to remember now that they loved them all the time same with Spandau but yeah there are there's definite pockets where you know Paul Young but then maybe it's just because of Love Will Tear Us Apart which is I've got to say a shocking a shocking cover of it <laughs> I was listening to it today I mean, I'm prepared to believe he did it for the best of intentions yeah. but yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a bit like when my mother like pebbled off the front of our terrace house she did it for the best of intentions but it wasn't <laughs> on reflection but no going back to I'm going to call them the tarts I've been trying to find them on the internet somebody said that one of them is now a priest or something did you read I that i saw that yes yeah one of them and i don't know which one it was married pino paladino paladini a very famous bass player who played on a lot of those live performances with paul young yeah and that's all i know but when i want there to be like the tarts to regroup and i will be there i'll be there at the hundred club at the front shaking my hands from side to side in a pineapple manner and doing the, and like do you remember that dance do you remember that Living i do in the yes the, put your hands put your hands in front of you cross those fingers up up aye, aye. Do you see, are you feeling it <laughs> what would they do though would they just do love of the common people without his bits in and then do the last time but no nobody's able to hear that though that's i the... want to think that they do a 47 minute long version of sex with paul young <laughs> basically maintaining eye contact on contact on you for the whole time tim <laughs> well i have noticed that one of the bonus tracks on the reissue of no parlay is sex brackets extended which it's a bit of an unfortunate sex title extended. really that's it that's only it's not just it sounds ruder than it it's is it's paul young going let me tell you what i want paul calm down no <laughs> Because you know what I'm thinking of, Paul, no. Like, please, can we not just have a little bit more blue-eyed soul? Just, <laughs> please. <laughs> okay, well, I don't think we're getting quite away from 80 sleeves for your next choice, which you might well have watched just after listening to No Parlay. Ladies and gentlemen, an important announcement from Academy Award-winning actor, Mr. George Kennedy. One very serious point. Lawnmowers do not kill people. People kill people. At last, a motion picture made by, for, and about people just like you and me. Damien, how many times have I told you this is not a toy? Your daughter's gonna die tonight. Then he says, um... <laughs> Oh, wow. Far out. Police business? Might have a few words with you. I'll never forget the first time I saw your father. If I'm rambling on too much, <laughs> just let me know. Uh, not at all. <laughs> 
At last, a motion picture made by, for, and about people just like you and me. Okay, that was the trailer for Wacko. No, not the Jimmy Edwards sitcom from the 50s. This is an altogether different prospect. Grace, I can scarcely believe that somebody has chosen this. Do fill us in. Wacko is, to me, fantastic evidence that when me and my brother were little, we had this amazing... I'm sure it's the same VHS video shop that a lot of people had near them. That kind of one of those dusty, kind of slightly smelly... VHS video shops, independent, independent completely, where they'll give you anything. They would give you anything. Never would they ever ask how old you were. You know what I mean? They would never stop you having anything. So me and my brother, you know, we would be like, oh, we've got Emmanuel out. <laughs> oh, like Revenge of the Nerds, Porkies. We used to get like really gruesome, like 80s samurai movies out. You know, someone's getting beheaded and their heads put on spikes and things like that. And then and amongst all of that, we used to get out this movie called Wacko. And it is a comedy horror spoof, a little bit like Airplane, a little bit like Police Squad. The people involved that were involved in Police Squad. It's funny, but it's actually very creepy. Now, we were talking about this earlier, this idea of these kind of very unsettling video. You know, this is, it's meant to be a comedy about a serial killer who works on a lawnmower, the lawnmower killer, right? But it's kind of, it's it's a bit of a spoof of Carrie and The Omen and Psycho and it's just, there's a running joke all the way through. I mean, this is just one of the many sick jokes. There's a running joke about the dad really wants to have sex with his daughter. And that goes all the way through that he's trying to creep and peep on her. And then there's a guy who keeps turning up for dinner and bringing his dead mother and she's a corpse. And, and we watched this movie and I think, I can't remember us really laughing at it. I remember us being appalled and then I think getting it out a further two or three times to see if it was as bad as we remembered. We were only little kids. And then we gave it back one day and never, ever got it again and never met anyone that ever knew about it. And there was a line in it which was something about every time this beautiful daughter asked why her dad was like trying to watch her in the shower or something, he'd go, she'd go, Daddy, what are you doing? And he'd go, oh, I'm just mowing the lawn, right? This is not a funny joke at all. But this line... Me and my brother would kind of... It's jokes that we've said for years, do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, what are you up to? Oh, I'm just mowing the lawn. And then I've never been able to find what this video was. And then I found it. I found the trailer for it the other day. And it's awful. It's horrific. It is a bit like Police Squad. But you can't quite believe it got made. You know, it's, it's just a really unsettling... Like, all the sets are grotty. Everything's grotty. All the actors are kind of like, they're either perverts or they're, you know, they're psychopaths. Anyway, Wacko, it was made in 1982. It was in our local video shop. If I had to say, was this one of my favourite videos around that time? No, my favourite was Revenge of the Nerds. I loved Revenge of the Nerds because that's got a much more, you know, I love Porky's as well. Kind of is rude and we probably shouldn't have been watching it, but like, you know, solid jokes, you know, <laughs> solid yeah. characters. Whereas this just felt like a free-for-all you know and is George Kennedy in it do you know what I mean George Kennedy he was in police squad so he's in it but like everybody else I just didn't even know who they are so yeah I think I am the only person that remembers Wacko although again if you kind of go on the internet you find people that go I went to see this in a movie theater in Boston in 1982 and I've never got over it <laughs> 
Well, there is the thing about it that the thing it reminded me of most is the sort of parody films that came later, like Scary Movie, yes. Not Another Teen Movie, Don't Be a Menace of South Central While Drinking Your Juice in the Horde, <laughs> except yeah. that this was parodying things like specifically Halloween, yes. Friday the 13th. I think there's a bit of Suspiria in there, which is a yeah. bit odd, but yeah. they are gruesome films. They might be very good films, but they are gruesome. How do you make a joke out of that? How do you make it funny? Yes. You can't really. The tropes that you're picking on are things that are deliberately supposed to shock yes. and repulse. Yes. So it's uh, creepy. How is that even going to work? It's creepy. It's unsettling because exactly with these spoof movies that have come since then, the ones that get made now, they're just a bit slicker, and it's like very much like the pace is quite fast, and it's and you kind of know it's a joke, and they're kind of taking the mick out of someone being chased, and la la la. With this. It really is like somebody turning up for dinner with a corpse and it's meant to be a spoof of Psycho or, you know, there's a rip-off of John Travolta and they have a lot of the kind of the carry, this idea of, you know, like, you know, blood falling from ceilings and stuff. There's just, you're absolutely right. They're things that aren't specifically very funny. It's just kind of (laughs) uh, like there's a real weird, like hodgepodge feeling about it. And again, I remember, you know, we would get to the end and you kind of turned it off and went, I think I just want to put something nice on now. This is a bit, but yeah, we watched it again and again and again, which is, but then, you know, this was the 80s. Well, there's also that whole very, very strange thing about, you know, the early days of video rental where not only was there no certification and you could put out whatever you wanted, but also the big distributors weren't putting their films on video yeah. because, you know, they still made money from television, right? So there was, you know, there was no James Bond, there was no Superman. There were all kinds of weird things that are now worth a small fortune on VHS. And this came out on video around then. And, you know, people probably got it out like they would have got out something big because there was nothing else on yeah. offer yeah the other bizarre thing to that is that you know they're then when they brought in certification a couple of years later anything that didn't have a certificate had to be taken off the shelves and i don't think wacko was ever be released on video so technically technically it's illegal wow which is i'm sure it's been on blu-ray or dvd since then but technically on vhs it is illegal i mean i later ended up working when i was doing my a levels in our local video shop and they had a box in the back of stuff that had to be taken off the shelves. Out of that box when no one was looking, I fished zombie flesh eaters, evil speak, which is one nobody remembers about the computer that talks to a boy, like I think the devil's infested the program or something, and the BBC Pinocchio. (laughs) Now, can you guess which of those I keep turned round on my shelf of VHSs (laughs) so it doesn't uh, get me? It's it's Pinocchio. Pinocchio. But I mean, these video shops were a fundamental part of Generation X's formative years. The idea of, you know, the VHS recorder even arriving in our lives, you know, we all remember where we were the first time, you know, the cool kid in your class got a VHS recorder and just casually mentioned that they had a pirate copy of E.T. And you all like piled round to the house and sat in the thought that you could kind of have some control over the things that you were watching was just incredible. But what I would say is that I think that, you know, I think this is why Generation X are so kind of gnarly and we get, we do get a little, you know, God bless us, we do get a bit kind of, oh, well, we had it so rough, we had it tough, you know, you need to toughen up. And I think that there is an element of it that people didn't really care so much about what we saw, you know, so... As I say, we did go down the video shop and they gave us anything we wanted, you know, or or your parents got, because there wasn't classification, your parents did come in and go, 
oh yeah, we've just got this film about, I think it's about karate. And it would just be some like full on samurai film, you know, <laughs> where like somebody's like hunting down people and like, you know, putting their entire family on sticks somewhere. And you're like, it's just, yeah. It is as well. There was a different kind of pecking order to home video. Even after they started releasing the big films on video, things would be successful on video that nobody saw in the cinema. That's why I really loved in Captain Marvel and the bit in 1995 when she falls through the roof of a blockbuster store. She picks up a copy of the Hudsucker Proxy. Yeah. Not anything that was big in 1995, something that you would have looked at in the video shop. And, you know, that's a great detail, mm. really, because there was that whole different culture. Yeah. yeah. I mean, these no, these things made us. But unfortunately, Wacko probably made me in a way that my therapists <laughs> still haven't managed to, to quell. Okay, well, moving on to your last choice now, which I'm sure the host of this programme will probably got quite upset about Wacko if they'd been told to get upset about it for ratings. But I'm going to play a piece of music now that I apologise for everyone listening of a certain generation who is going to be reminded that they've got school tomorrow morning. <laughs> Okay, that's the That's Life theme tune. There's no mistaking that. Grace, I know there's something particularly you want to talk about about That's Life, so off you go. As a food expert, apparently, I eat all kinds of bizarre things and I'm meant to be fearless about what I eat. And I am to an extent, but still to this day, and this is because of That's Life, I am scared of kidney beans. (laughs) (laughs) and and, you know i love i love this podcast and i've heard people come on and talk about there was a man who was scared of was it hogweed giant hogweed yeah that was bob Hogweed. and then was there somebody that was scared of beetles or something oh joanne with the colorado Colorado beetles these are other perfect examples of being told something by and that's life was if you were going to be told something that's life was as big as it got you know (laughs) and they loved to kind of go and now a serious story <laughs> you, know what I mean? you have to do it in that it voice. Be, you know, first of all, you'd have what's his face sitting in his chair in his velvet smoking jacket, like doing his. What was he called? I can't Cyril, Cyril Fletcher, Fletcher with his odd First, I'm going to do a poem about. And then he would go over to Esther and she'd go, and now a frightening and terrifying tale. And it was about basically somebody had kind of, like, you would have the letter. I'm sure the letter said something like, my father decided to have some of these continental kidney beans. And it, now, did somebody die? I don't want to start laughing, but I'm pretty sure they were either severely ill or there was, a, I want to think that in my head that I remember a fatality. Was there a fatality? But, it was something to do with if you get dry kidney beans and you don't hydrate them enough, then they get into your system and they nearly kill you, right? Now, to this day, I'm scared of kidney beans. There's a bit of me that goes, 
No, it's fine. It's fine. But if like I'm fine with tins of kidney beans because I know I can trust them. But if somebody was to come into my kitchen and go, Grace, I've just got this packet of dry kidney beans. I'm just going to hydrate them overnight and then cook them. I'd be like, whoa, hang on a minute. <laughs> I think that we need to Google something before we start here. And I think that we maybe need to tip off the air ambulance because there, may, <laughs> there might be some kind of... And there's something... Do you remember this? Like, Do you remember kidney beans being, you know, a health and safety issue? Well, I remember them in relation to another programme, which I'll come back to in a second. But I did some digging into this and it turns out that the man in question was seriously ill. He did survive. But it was over... Delia Smith recipe in a cookery book, which, you know, this is where it gets really complicated, was published by BBC Books. The complaint was made that although apparently I haven't seen the original book, so I can't confirm this, in the original pressing, in the introductory section, you know, there were do's and don'ts, you know, make sure you cook kidney beans for this long, blah, blah, blah. In the recipe, it didn't restate that. Dodgy. And they just kind of threw them in raw almost. But it led to a feud between, because Delia Smith had to apologise for it and didn't (laughs) want to. I love the fact that as she's got older, Delia Smith is very candid. I love her. I love Very, her. you know, refuses to count out to people. Yeah. There is a feud between her and Esther Branson, which is still occasionally ongoing in interviews. It's like a rap I battle. would watch that fight. I would watch digging it. At each if, other. They, if they fought each other on pay-per-view, I would absolutely <laughs> watch that. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember it in relation to somebody writing into points of view about apparently this would have been, you know, I would have been about eight or something. So I wouldn't have seen play school for a long time. But apparently they made percussion instruments and somebody had said they were clearly using kidney beans to fill some shakers <sighs> or something. And what if a child ate them instead of, you know... <laughs> rattling them and you know there should be the warning given out it's a health and safety nightmare I was concerned for Big Ted and Little Ted to be honest with you do you remember on That's Life when lots of people ordered Boy George dolls and they didn't and they didn't get them And people wrote into That's Life going, I ordered from, I think it was the the Boy George fan club or whatever, I ordered my Boy George doll and I have been waiting for 14 (laughs) weeks. I didn't get my Boy George doll and I, and I, I, I sent them a postal order and I didn't get one. And they got Boy George in to apologize. And he sang Karma Chameleon, but he changed the words. <laughs> he changed the words to Come, a, come, a, come, a, come, a, come, a, the orders come. They come. <laughs> and I always think of that. I always, But I loved That's Life. I loved it. The moment you hear that music, you're just like, oh, God, you're just sitting in a living room with wet hair with your mother going, you need to go to bed. You need to go to bed. Like, please let me watch That's Life. Well, my favourite thing on it, for so many reasons, was this would have been the mid to late 80s. Basically, a goth band wrote in saying that they'd used a professional video maker and they weren't happy with the quality of the video. And, you know, they showed a clip of it. To me, it looked like an amateur live video of a band would have been in those days. And they obviously thought it didn't show them gothically (laughs) enough. But to sting this guy, this director, the That's Life team pretended to be a punk band. (laughs) And, you know, say 1987 or something. It was actually them playing the instruments, like Gavin Campbell playing the drums and so on, just with Mohicans yeah. on. But they did a song called We Want to Be Famous. Oh, my God. Written by Grant Bainham. And it is so bad. It is almost a work of genius. It later got released as a single. But the guy was kind of, well, the band asked me to shoot them, you know, and I did. 
what's their issue? That was how I felt at the time watching it. But I love the fact that they've gone to the extent of... Yeah. I mean, a couple of people have said that... You know when these do Vox Pops on yes. That's Life? That yes. The audience would have hysterics if they spoke to a punk for no reason. <laughs> yeah. They'd just shriek yeah. laughing. And like... Why did they find punk so amusing in the late 80s? It's just a sort of anybody with a Mohican. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, I I think that they should put That's Life back on. I always think yeah. that. It's just, it's a little bit current affairs. It was a little bit kind of surprise, surprise. And it was emotional. And it had, a, you know, consumer problems. I, I don't know. There was just, I kind of liked the abbreviation that said this is the end of the weekend you've watched highway (laughs) (laughs) you've had your antiques roadshow what else was on like was it was maybe you've got an episode of hamish Macbeth or something like that and then that's life but i'll be honest about it there were some things that you know they did actually do i know it's easy to mock that's Mm. life some good campaigning work on serious issues but there were also things like the two that really stick in my mind were the supposed slimming aids guar gum And buy Lin Tea. Buy Lin Tea in particular, I thought, if you're soft enough to think that you can magically lose weight by drinking tea, you might deserve to be ripped (laughs) off a bit. I think that people underestimate how funny a dog saying sausages actually was. <laughs> I mean, like, your family almost needed to be sedated because they were laughing so much. <laughs> and do you remember when the, the sheepdog drove the car? Yes, yeah. I do, and yeah. Didn't that turn out to be a man in a costume? a man in a costume. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> but these things were fantastic. I'm sorry, but they were. But they have ruined forevermore my love of a kidney bean when i see one in a chili con carne i'm a bit like Oof. well i hope nobody asks you to review their kidney bean restaurant in the I, da- future, I dare them to i dare just them file to. blank I copy to live a long life either that or they install you as new house of that's life grace it's been brilliant thank you thank you for having me this is the most fun that i've had for a long time thank you <laughs> Can't help thinking about me, like Tim Worthington. A big book full of old articles giving a new twist, looking at how and why I ended up on the BBC News Channel with a big caption saying, Clangers Expert. More details, timworthington.org.